You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to our podcast live from the ABA section of Antitrust Law Spring Meeting 2018. This is Matt Joseph. I'm an associate at Freed Frank here in Washington, D.C., and the Young Lawyer Representative for the Advertising Disputes and Litigation Committee of the ABA Antitrust Section. And today, I'm your host for today's podcast, which is being recorded on location at the spring meeting in Washington, D.C. at the Marriott. And we are lucky enough to have two excellent guests today. Joining me are Christy Thompson, partner and chair of Kelly Dry's Advertising and Marketing and Consumer Product Safety Practice Groups, and Leslie Fair, senior attorney in the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection. Thanks to both of you for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. And before we dive into some of the substantive matters going on in the consumer protection world, but for the benefit of our listeners, I think it would be great to hear from both of you about your backgrounds. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? And uh, Christy, why don't you kick it off? Sure. Thanks. I spend my days really helping manufacturers and sellers of consumer products protect their brands as they are developing claims and practices to sell their products and services. And sometimes we get involved early in the process as they are actually developing the claims. Other times we get involved somewhere along the way. Uh, And sometimes we get involved when there is some sort of a dispute, either an inquiry from a regulator like the Federal Trade Commission or a state AG, or there is a dispute among competitors. So uh, one competitor doesn't like what the client is saying, and they are either exchanging nasty grams or going before the NAD, the National Advertising Division of the Council of Better Business Bureaus, or in litigation under the Lanham Act, and periodically class action litigations when consumers uh, uh, think that there is some sort of a dispute, and then they might file a class action. Great. Thanks, Christy. Uh, Leslie? Yes, I'm a senior attorney at the Federal Trade Commission, which is why I will give my required disclaimer that I'm speaking just for myself. Two minutes into this, that'll be very apparent, but uh, just in case there's a question. I litigated at the FTC uh, for the first 25 years of my career. I have been at the FTC for one-third of its history uh, since I'm entering my 32nd year there. So certainly what I did was uh, investigate and bring lawsuits against companies engaged in what the FTC alleged were unfair, deceptive acts or practices. Um, I figured a quarter of a century of litigation was enough for anybody. I am now the FTC's uh, primary business blogger. Uh, I also spend a lot of time speaking to trade associations, business groups, bar associations, Boy Scout troops. I describe it as carpe podium. But the easy way to answer what I do is to answer the name of this session. Uh, Who's protecting the consumers? I'd like to think the answer to that is me and my 300 brothers and sisters at the FTC and obviously um, our siblings at uh, the state AGs and other agencies. All right. And if you don't get Leslie's blog post, you absolutely should subscribe to them. Uh, you get you can learn lyrics to music. Thank you. And I will make a, yes, that is a disclosure required under our endorsement guide. So thank you very much, Christy. <laughs> well, this is excellent. Thank you both. Uh, we're here today to talk about consumer protection, what's new, what's interesting in the consumer protection law world. And hopefully Christy and Leslie will offer some advice to more junior antitrust bar members along the way. So just to start things with our first question, I'd like to just ask generally to both of you about how and why you got into the world of consumer protection law. Christy? I actually 
uh, came to DC for law school thinking I wanted to be a lobbyist. I had no idea what that really meant, but I thought of it as someone who could affect policy change. And after working on the Hill one summer during law school, I learned a little bit about more what it entailed and realized it wasn't exactly what I had envisioned through my rose-colored glasses and decided that wasn't really for me. And then during my second year of law school, I was a summer associate at a firm here in D.C., just kind of went in as because it, it was a job and I was going to pay, they were going to pay me and I liked that. And very randomly at the first welcome reception for associates, I met a, a partner in the firm named Lou Rose, who was heading up their practice, their advertising and federal regulatory practice. And he said, my main name is Grimes. And he said, Christy Grimes. <laughs> That's like grimy from The Simpsons, right? And I had never seen an episode of The Simpsons, but like any good summer associate, I said, absolutely. <laughs> and <I> laughed. And, um, and so we became fast friends. And he was um, chair of the advertising practice group at uh, that firm. And then as the summer progressed, he said, come, we want to give you an offer. We want you to come work with us and and be an advertising lawyer. And I, not being a wise summer associate, said, really? Because at that point, I was kind of, I really like the trademark folks too. I'm kind of thinking I want to be a trademark lawyer. And he said, trademark lawyer? Why would, you? trademark lawyers are a dime a dozen. At the, and at that point, you know, the, the advertising law bar has certainly grown since this time. But at that time, our practice had six people in it, uh, and now we've got 20. <laughs> and so I said, okay, you know, this is a way for me to distinguish myself and and be in a practice that aligned nicely with my marketing degree from undergrad, but I don't think that was necessary, but it was just an area where I was interested in. I just saw it as an opportunity to be a little bit different and have a different identity from some of the other practices around the firm. Cool. Leslie? Uh, I think I'm kind of a case study for how to create a consumer protection lawyer almost in utero. Um, My uh, dad was uh, a 38-year veteran of the United States Army, and so we moved around uh, as he uh, served his country, and I was raised in a family that considered public service to be the highest calling. And so from his standpoint, you know, he said, what you do for a living when you grow up is you serve your country. And uh, nobody wanted me behind the wheel of a tank, and so I figured my next choice, uh, plan B, was an attorney working for the federal government. Um, The other genetic half is uh, my mom is one of those women who has the business card for the produce manager of the local grocery store on a magnet on her refrigerator. Now, first, who knew they had business cards? But she was one of those women who I would sit in the cart and watch her take the butcher to task for selling her a fatty cut of brisket. Um, This was at a time in the 50s and 60s where women didn't have a lot of market power or business power. The one kind of power they had was in the grocery store line. And so when we look at the development of consumer protection law in the second half of the 20th century, I wish I could say that it was politicians and government policymakers uh, who really shaped the law. I think in a lot of ways, it was fed up women at grocery stores trying to expand the family budget. So watching her with the other influence of my dad is why I knew that what I wanted to do was uh, 
uh, it was act in the public service. Um, I initially started as a criminal defense lawyer. I was a member of a group called the Superior Court Trial Lawyers Association, who, as antitrust lawyers know, that group was sued by the Federal Trade Commission in the early 80s. So to my knowledge, I may be the only defendant who actually works at the FTC. Um, but that was my first uh, knowledge uh, of what the FTC was. I had worked for legal services, was aware of the importance of landlord-tenant and financial disclosures. But I really had no choice. There was nothing I could have done but become a consumer protection attorney. That's great. Um, Leslie, just to stick with you, we're certainly now at an interesting time for the interaction of consumer protection laws with the digital economy and the prevalence of social media and the Internet of Things technology that are out there. How has the FTC evolved and adapted to these rapid changes in technology? Certainly, there's been a lot of change in the in the way um, businesses communicate with consumers, and, and I think that's a great development. However, what hasn't changed are the 26 words of the Federal Trade Commission Act, which remain virtually unchanged since 1914. Unfair, deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce are hereby declared unlawful. I left out the antitrust words, but you know what I, you know what I mean. Um, and, and so I think what's helpful for me, having been there so long, these were the same questions that people were asking us in 1994 to say, this internet thing, there's no possible way the Federal Trade Commission can, can manage this, uh, you know, the deceptive claims there. It's impossible. And so we proved them wrong on that. Uh, you know, then we heard social media. My gosh, there's no way the FTC can do something about that. And, you know, I'd like to think we've continued in the mobile space, in the digital space. We have our OTEC, an office of attorneys and investigators with real expertise. They run our secret, confidential, non-public internet lab, which I just told you about. There are real tech experts. We have a chief technologist that really helps. Uh, so we've tried to stay ahead of rapid technology with the same number of attorneys we've had for many, many years. So the job is a lot harder now, but you know we're committed to doing our best to, to keep ahead because from our point of view, we have the most important client around, consumers. And you know, Christy, somewhat relatedly, social media has made ad substantiation and endorsements and testimonials a hot topic for consumer protection lawyers and their clients. What, what are the emerging trends that, that you and your clients are dealing with in that space? Sure. So just echoing what Leslie said, in many ways, the rules have not changed. It's just the execution and application of the rules. So to a large extent, we're getting clients that have new questions, but a lot of our answers are often start at the same place. The rules for substantiation have not changed. The rules for certain disclosures have not changed about the need to make disclosures, the requirements to make those disclosures clear and conspicuous. It's just in the execution of those. And so a lot of the questions we are getting do relate to the nature of the disclosure and the both from a content perspective and then the execution on it. The same, the four Ps that the FTC has been talking about now really in the digital years, they still apply. And the FTC has done a nice job of providing updated guidance on that to tell businesses, hey, here's how here's how you need to make those disclosures. And what we are seeing from clients is a lot of questions about, okay, well, now we're going to add this filter to Snapchat. How do we do that? And, 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 and our responses, uh, again, kind of start from that same place. Influencers have, have been a big 
issue for in the social media world. One, because you have this proliferation of people of of the existence of an influencer because social media is so much about sharing information about your life and sharing things often that you like. And so there questions come up regularly about, well, is this... Is this a um, endorsement of some sort or not? And under the FTC's guides, if it is an endorsement, if you have some material connection to the product or service or company that you are endorsing, then you need to disclose that. And so, in social media, one is is an endorsement. I I liked the I. I posted a picture of myself using the product. Am, am I now, um, is that an endorsement if the company then takes that and uses it in its own social media? And so questions about whether or not it's an endorsement. And then the disclosure, making sure that the disclosure is sufficient. And we've seen social media platforms become aware of that and developing their own tools in how to at least make some attempts on how to make some of those disclosures relating to the material connection. And we've even seen with this proliferation of influencers who now are like actors and actresses and song people, they have agents and they get paid big bucks to post this information. They're, they are getting savvier. Their agents are getting savvier um, in terms of educating them on the need to make these disclosures in the rules around them. Um, it's kind of related native advertising. I, for the longest time, would say, what's the big deal about native advertising? <laughs> it's, it's it's still the same rule. If, if a consumer is not going to understand that you are being incentivized to post certain content, you need to make that disclosure. So um, while topics like native advertising and influencers have been hot topics for our clients, a lot of it is still just the same rules, but but they struggle with how to apply them when you have um, geographic limitations, limitations on the number of characters that you can use, and so that's really where we start to get into the more granular discussions. That's that's a great great description of, of the issues that that your clients are facing. So Leslie, just to sort of change the landscape of what we're talking about, it it seems like there are more federal agencies like the CPSC that are getting involved with consumer protection and privacy issues. Could you explain to our listeners how the FTC liaises with those other agencies and maybe how that's the same or different than the FTC's relationship with the DOJ? You know, one of these days I should take a picture of my speed dial numbers on my phone to see what they are, FDA, CPSC, CFPB, SEC, Department of Justice, state AGs, um, you know, whether for good or for bad, I, I'm, I guess for bad, I don't, I fear we will never run out of unfair or deceptive trade practices out there. I wish we would. Um, there is more than enough uh, that needs to be done so that the agencies don't need to be sort of on top of each other. Um, we try our best to decide among us, um, you know, what's the best use of resources that don't belong to us, it belongs to taxpayers, um, and how to spend those wisely to get the most bang for the buck. Now, does that mean that it's impossible for two agencies to bring the same, a similar case? That may happen every now and then. Uh, it doesn't often happen. But when it does, it's usually because there are remedies that some agencies can get and others can't. Uh, the FTC has very, very strong injunctive remedies. Uh, and so that's something that some agencies cannot. There are instances where we cannot get civil penalties and state attorneys general may be able to. Um, the most important thing we appreciate is that it's bad for business and bad for consumers 
um, certainly bad for Christie's clients to have um, conflicting or incongruous um, regulations or guidance from from government agencies. And so, you know, we want to cut red tape and we want to make real sure that when we do it, we're cutting it across and not lengthwise. Uh, we don't want to compound the problem. So we work really, really closely uh, with all of those agencies. And we think that, um, you know, like having commissioners with different um, perspectives. These agencies have different areas of expertise, and I think we work best when we work together. And so, um, you know, I think that's why, you know, it's it's been, you know, I learn a lot from working with folks at the other agencies. What a lot of young attorneys may not be aware is that the FTC, for the most part, we do our own litigation. I, there is a wonderful Office of Consumer Litigation at the Department of Justice. They do phenomenal work, and we work regularly with them. But for the most part, the FTC, Bureau of Consumer Protection, not its general counsel, its Bureau of Consumer Protection, are the litigators. We investigate the cases, and then if we get leave to file, we bring the cases. And so very often it's with experts from the National Institutes of Health or the FDA or safety experts at CPSC. So, you know, I think in, at least in my experience, it has been a very cooperative relationship with other federal agencies and certainly with other state agencies since many, many of our cases are brought jointly with the great folks at state AG's offices. Christy, what's the private practice perspective on dealing with multiple agencies? Taking a step back and recognizing the big picture and really understanding the client's business and what their objectives are and so that you can understand the relationship among the different agencies and how they are going to affect the client's objectives. I spend a significant amount of my time before the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And there is periodic overlap in the issues that they deal with. So we try to be the the ones who put things into perspective and take that step back and look at it. If there is a situation where there are overlapping jurisdictions or conflicting uh, conflicting rules on something. We see that a lot, for example, with state state statutes that govern promotional pricing. There's a lot of litigation right now around sale pricing, and there are a myriad of state standards out there, and there's, there is some consensus in when you look at the statutes, but um, not much. It's, I think maybe four states have the same language and the same standard. And so understanding the, the business objective of the client and how they can take that hodgepodge of standards and apply it to their business, it gets a little bit different if there is an investigation. And then it's really about understanding the scope of the investigation by because you can have multiple investigations happening by multiple entities and it's understanding the scope of the investigation making sure that you are aligned in the the story you're telling to each of the agencies cuz certainly you don't want to you got to maintain your credibility and you want to be truthful and making and and understanding that there could at some point be a comparison of notes among them and understanding what the jurisdiction is of each agency. The different agencies sometimes have different rules on production of documents, how they produce it, what is what is required to produce. So it's really um, navigating that landscape. Uh, and then in an ideal world, trying to get them all into agreement so they get a universal settlement that you can tie up with a little bow so that going forward, you have one set of rules to follow instead of 
40 or so in the states and one from the FTC and maybe one from a different federal agency. And so, Leslie, taking a step back from, you know, some substantive matters, um, what what sort of advice would you give to, you know, maybe some of our junior attorney listeners who are just getting started in the antitrust and consumer protection space? Um, you know, in addition to working at the FTC for almost 32 years, I moonlight. I have a second job in that I have been an adjunct uh, on the adjunct law faculty of both uh, Catholic University Law School and GW for a total of about 35 years now. And so I talk a lot to law students and folks right out of law school about this. I I think the first thing in the advertising area, um, and this is advice I'm surprised people are surprised to hear, you got to kind of watch a lot of TV. (laughs) Really? (laughs) How great is this job? Um, You know, when I talk to um, uh, law students, for example, who who say, I really want to do what you want to do, my first question is, well, what's an ad you've seen recently that you thought the FTC ought to do something about? And the response is invariably, oh, I just don't have time to do that. Well, you know... (laughs) Um, you know, first, if I have time to watch that many Real Housewives shows, you do too, you know. Um, but I think the important thing is to kind of immerse yourself in the business of your clients. Learn about advertising. Learn about how they use social media. So don't just look at it from a litigation standpoint. I think that'll make you a I'm assuming, a better counselor to your clients to understand their business. Um, So I think that's one thing I would say to to, um, junior attorneys. I'd also suggest, you know, doing what they can to volunteer in this area. There are a lot of pro bono opportunities, you know, in in legal services kind of, of areas where new attorneys can take on pretty big counseling responsibilities without taking too much time away from from their, you know, I was about to say they're nine to five, and I mean that, you know, nine at night until five the next week, um, you know, uh, job hours. <laughs> but to, you know, get that feeling of what it's like to have a client, uh, you know, almost ready to lose her house or being a veteran hounded by debt collectors for a debt she doesn't owe. Uh, I think that'll put what we all do in a little bit more perspective. The only other little bit of advice I would give is to remember that the advertising and consumer protection bar is a pretty small one. We all know each other. And and this goes for both FTC attorneys and outside counsel. Uh, reputation, I think, is an important thing for all of us. All of us have made mistakes as, as junior attorneys <laughs> that could have uh, put a smudge on our reputation for being truthful and accurate and cooperative. Um, The the best example of this that I saw about doing it the right way, um, the late Chairman Janet Steiger, who was the first woman to chair the FTC, uh, would always have, you know, opposing counsels, the FTC counsel and somebody from Christie's firm or someone else. We would uh, kind of explain both sides of the case to her. She would always um, uh, sit us in her waiting room where there was a big thousand puzzle piece, puzzle, half finished on the table. And she'd have a sit around there and then would come out and say, listen, I, I'm sorry, I'm running late. I've got a call. It'll be just 15 minutes. Sit here. You guys, I'm having trouble with the left corner. Finish that puzzle, would you? And she would have these FTC people and these um, senior partners working together to finish a puzzle outside her office, um, which, of course, I now realize what an amazing object lesson the very wise Janet Steiger was trying to give us, that in the long run, both our clients are, are better served and America's consumers are better served if we can reach a reasonable 
results um, that takes both of their interests in, in hand. So I think that's what I would suggest, um, you know, just to think about, uh, you know, the big picture for folks at the beginning of their career. Thank you. Christy, anything to add to that? Highlighting what Leslie said, being part of the antitrust section has really given me tremendous opportunities to meet Leslie, others from the Federal Trade Commission, others from state AGs, other agencies, as well as uh, folks at other firms who I'm sometimes adverse to, and knowing them on a personal level and having... uh, Outside interests with them has been tremendous in, in terms of getting to a resolution that is reasonable and that works for everyone and doing it in an efficient way for the client and for the government. You know, you, you there are inevitably situations where someone's taking a position and you can't do much about it or something's taking longer to get to produce. But when you're able to pick up the phone and call the person and say, look, I know you guys need this. I know the deadline was last week and we told you we'd get it to you this Friday. I don't have it yet. I'm doing everything I can. That credibility that you have built through um, through the for me in large part through involvement in the ABA section, really within you know certainly within the other sides. I'm not asking them to bend the rules. I'm just asking them to kind of under, get where we're coming from. And if you have that trust built up, then that can often give them a basis to say, all right, all right, but you've got to get it to me on Friday. <laughs> um, so you can at least buy a little time. And then, you know, as soon as I hang up the phone with the other side, I'm calling the client saying, you have got to get this to me on Friday. And my head's on the block here. <laughs> Leslie, is there anything that you would like to add just in in terms of like what value the ABA antitrust section has provided to you over the years? Well, in addition to meeting Christy, who was my ABA boss for a number of years, <laughs> um, it you know it lets us see the big picture. Um, and I have another uh, sort of kind of covert reason for wanting to participate. You know, I I am a member of a much maligned group, federal employees. Many people think folks in the government. You know, they they think of you know speaking of the Simpsons, Marge Simpson's sisters at the DMV. Let's face it, we have not a great reputation. And so I, I always look at my ABA activities, at speaking to public groups. You know, every day my hope is, is there one person whose opinion I can help change about those who've devoted their lives in service to them? Um, I, one of my first cases I ever worked on, we introduced some consumer uh, witnesses. Uh, we did a deposition around a lady's kitchen table. I still get a Christmas card from her when all I really did was get her a check for $55 back for the water filter filter that we allege did not advertise as it should. And I think, um, you know, the ABA, I learned from them and, and I hope in a small way I can let them know that, you know, we are trying to work together for good business, good business practices lead to the best for consumers, which is really my goal. Well, this was just fantastic. Thank you both so much for joining us. And, you know, one final question is for both of you, if our listeners have questions or wish to follow up with you, get in touch with you, how how should they reach you, Christy? Happy to take any questions, career or otherwise. My email address is C-G-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N at kellydry.com. It's K-E-L-L-E-Y-D-R-Y-E. Dot com or phone numbers 202-342-8633, and I'd love to hear from you. Um, I especially fo- uh, encourage folks to contact me because uh, the folks that are listening to this pay my salary. I have, my last name is Fair, F-A-I-R, uh, another reason I had no choice but to go into this line of work. It's L Fair. 
L-F-A-I-R at FTC.gov, the shortest email in the business. My phone is 202-326-3081, and we have an open door, open email, open phone policy, not only for folks who want to talk about careers or uh, getting involved in the ABA, but also for um, business people, their attorneys, advertising folks who have questions. We don't pre-clear ads, but we're delighted to steer folks in the right direction because we, you know, we don't forget who we work for. Well, thank, thank you again, both of you. And this concludes another great podcast from the ABA section of antitrust law at the spring meeting in 2018. If you like what you heard, please find us and rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Matt Joseph. And until next time, thank you very much for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.